The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. All right, let's try to uh, get back into uh, the flow of things where we were. Uh, If you have the outline sheet in front of you, uh, let me remind you yet once again what I'm about in this first main uh, segment on uh, uh, eschatology and ethics. Um, It is my effort uh, to do what I think needs to be done first in dealing with the document, and that is to set out uh, what appears to be uh, the overall framework uh, structure of the author's uh, thinking and teaching as it relates to eschatology. Uh, remember how we uh, identify the two controlling axes of, of the teaching, uh, that is 13.22, word of exhortation, 8.1, main point, the high priestly ministry of Christ. And we've been working uh, at um, developing, if you will, or fine-tuning um, the structure that uh, is defined by these two defining verses, and that has brought us in the third place uh, where we were, um, where we begun to go to work at the passage 3 7 through 4 13 and the theme of the church as the new wilderness community. Now, what we've done, uh, we looked at the verses that immediately precede uh, the segment 3 1 through 6, uh, the way in which in 6b, um, the, the redemptive historical uh, overarching perspective that is um, developed by contrasting uh, Christ as son and Moses uh, in the house, as they're in the one house of God, the way that's focused on the readership, uh, whose house we are if we hold fast, and that uh, 6b can be seen as a kind of a trigger uh, initiating uh, the discussion in the segment that we're concerned with, 3.7 through 4.13 or 11. Could, uh, debate that, um, how, how the structure tails off. Now, we'd also, and this is what we were doing right at the end uh, last time we were together, we'd also said something about the construction or the formation of um, the passage beginning at 3.7. And in a sense... Uh, I do this sometime in lecturing. Um, uh, I belabor the point so that it becomes more obscure than it really needs to be. The, the, the issue here is, is simply that the introduction of the psalm material at 3.7 is, let's put it in a more balanced way, uh, way now, not so much to proof text 6b, but to serve as a textual base Um, for the writer's own discussion that flows out of that. And we saw that we can see uh, some background for this in in the contemporary hermeneutics, uh, the Midrash-like character of this passage. Uh, 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 The writer's annotated commentary is what we have, if you will, on the material from Psalm 95, Septuagint, 7 through 11. All right. Now, having said all that, um, we can uh, move on and, um, and begin to uh, make some observations as to how he develops the central theme in this uh, passage. Uh, the writer makes the psalm material his point of departure, again, as it amplifies the statement of verse 6b, Because there, in the reference to Israel in the Sinai Desert, he finds certain factors that bear directly on the situation of his own readers. Let me just insert here parenthetically, by the way, I maybe should have said this before I got this this thought started. Uh, Notice the way in which uh, verse 7 begins the introductory formula 
uh, it's kathos lege to pneuma to hagion, as the Holy Spirit says. And uh, just remind ourselves, uh, as this would bear on the doctrine of, of Scripture, um, so-called bibliology, as, as some like to refer to it, we have here a very clear instance, example of the New Testament pattern of equating what Scripture says with what God says. Some of you may remember an article by B.B. Warfield uh, in, in the Doctrine on Inspiration. It says, Scripture says, God says. And you'll, you'll see uh, that's the title of the article. Um, it says, Scripture says, God says. Um, you'll, you'll find an elab a full elaboration treatment of uh, the phenomenon that we have here. Uh, equating what Psalm, 90, Psalm 95 is the Holy Spirit speaking. Uh, what of, in our own context is further of interest is that over in 4.7, at 4.7, uh, now we have the qualification as certain material is quoted from Psalm 95, uh, in Dawid Legon, saying through David. So now uh, there is the human instrumentality. So you see, you have the basic model elements for a biblical doctrine of, of revelation or, or of inspiration. Uh, if you will, um, the uh, undoubted primary divine authorship, it is a matter ultimately of God speaking, it's God's words, and yet there is at the same time the recommend, uh, clear uh, recognition of human instrumentality. It involves David as author of Psalm 95. So, uh, just worth uh, reminding ourselves of that detail. Now, as we were saying, main uh, track here, the writer uh, picks up, makes the psalm material his point of departure because uh, he sees their factors in the situation that the psalm describes, Israel in the Sinai Desert, that bear directly now on the situation of his own readers. More particularly, uh, these factors are uh, the voice of God speaking and speaking both promises and threats. Both those facets need to be brought out. Both promise and threat. On the one hand, there is the promise of entering God's rest. The, the promise of, of entering that rest imminently, soon held out to those who believe. In other words, the promise to faith. But there is also involved in the psalm material the reality of the wrath of God, the wrath of God eventually poured out then on the wilderness generation, and their failure, their failure to enter because, enter the rest because of unbelief. In other words, what the writer sees, uh, in the psalm material that are, uh, is pivotal, pivotal for him. Pivotal are the factors of God's promise and warning with their correlatives, faith and unbelief. Promise and warning, divine promise and warning with their uh, correlatives, respectively, faith and unbelief. Let me just uh, add here further that um, when, when we raise the question as to what situation in the, uh, in, is in view in Psalm 95, 7 more exactly? That is, uh, clearly it's, it's out of the, gen, uh, of, the, um, of the wilderness generation. But uh, as David is, is reflecting, uh, what more precisely in that wilderness uh, uh, journey, that wilderness uh, pilgrimage, what, does he have, what more events 
what events more specifically does he have in mind? And uh, that's an issue, I think, that can be um, debated somewhat. For instance, if you have a Bible Society's text in front of you, uh, they reference at verse 8 of Hebrews 3, uh, with the reference to harding, don't harden your heart as in the embitterment, the rebellion, the provocation. Uh, you see, they refer back to Exodus 7, uh, and uh, Numbers 20, whereas verse 11, uh, with the divine oath of, of uh, consigning to, um, to wrath, uh, November, November, Numbers, <laughs> I don't know what kind of slip that's supposed to be, uh, Numbers 14, verses 21 through 23. So that um, I think it's, it's difficult to, to pin it down uh, to one specific incident, but uh, there's perhaps a mosaic of concern. Um, and that the whole, uh, he, he, the, uh, the psalm, and this is certainly now what the writer of Hebrews does with the psalm, uh, where the psalm may be looking at primarily at the incident in Exodus 17, um, the writer of Hebrews sees that then uh, as, as capturing the whole, the substance of the entire uh, wilderness experience, and particularly as that, as that wilderness experience comes to its, its, its culmination in Numbers 14, where the, uh, the, uh, the spies have gone over into the land, have reported, come back, and the people then rebel at their report. So, um, keeping uh, that, those considerations in mind, and we'll go on then to, to flesh that out further, let me, though, at this point, um, accent something that's very uh, important. It's essential to grasp that the entire passage here in Hebrews rests on an assumption that is never spelled out. But even though it's never spelled out, it is an assumption uh, that we can uh, be quite certain about. It's quite clear, and that is this assumption. Israel in the wilderness, believers under the new covenant, are in analogous situations. Analogous comparative situations. Without going uh, just at this point into into detail, let me just reference for you some of the uh, materials uh, very quickly in the the passage. New Testament Christians receive the same promise, and that is the promise of rest. 3.11 and 4.1. New Testament believers similarly are exposed to trials. And along with that, those trials, the same danger of unbelief, the danger of unbelief, or in its, in its starkest, its ultimate manifestation, the threat of apostasy. And here the sharpest... Um, uh, statement would be 3.12. Take heed that there not be in any of you an evil heart, apistios, of unbelief, into apostenai, in falling away, apostatizing from the living God. Um and 3.19 and 4.6. and 4.6. And so, uh, along with this, these uh, elements of comparison, New Testament believers are also exhorted to perseverance. To perseverance in faith. 
3, 8, 14, 4, 1, and 11. So to generalize this a bit further, um, the writer's point of controlling consideration for him is that in New Testament times, as well as Old Testament times, God's people are pilgrim people. The people of God in the New Covenant, as well as the Old, have as their essential identity that they are wayfarers. The writer is saying, now as well as then, God's people are on the way. But their being on the way is bracketed. They have already, the writer certainly wants them to understand, that comes out from the opening uh, uh, tone of the document, they have already experienced deliverance from the power of sin, which, in the case of the wilderness generation, uh, is pictured by deliverance out of Egypt, release from Egyptian bondage. But on the other hand, while they have already been delivered from uh, sin and its controlling power, they have not yet attained to the experience of salvation, which is unthreatened or unchallenged. Or in other terms, uh, in, uh, bringing into view the, the, uh, the wilderness uh, generation picture, they have not yet entered the land. They are not yet in Canaan. So in other words, I'll pick up the question just a second. Uh, the wilderness situation captures in very graphically what we can now call, um, uh, what we referred to last time, uh, the contingent certainty or a better, the threatened not necessarily better, but another way of putting it, the threatened certainty. This is as fundamental dimension as any the writer wants his readers to understand of the existence of the New Testament people of God, their situation being that of threatened certainty. And, and um, I'm, I'm trying to formulate carefully here. Uh, the threat is... The threat is real, but the salvation is not uncertain. There we would be off the track. And we'll get into that issue further on down when we, we talk about the, the, uh, the apostasy passages. It is uh, to capture a, a balance, threatened certainty. And the uh, wilderness generation captures that. Um, maybe let me just go a little bit further. Go ahead. I just want you to re restate something you said. Oh. I missed the word that I thought was true. You said, uh, however, they have not yet attained an unthreatened, unchallenged. Uh, there was before you did the contingent certainty. Uh, an experience of they have been they have been saved, but they have not yet uh, attained to an experience of salvation. I think is 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 what I was wanting to get at. That is unthreatened. Or un, unchallenged. So um, you can see then how we come to the the title of um, section three, uh, section C: the church as a new wilderness community, uh, because the writer, uh, as we're seeing now, and this, and, and we still need to clarify this further, uh, the writer. Uh, point is that the New Testament church is a wilderness community, a wilderness community. Uh, in uh, the language uh, of chapter 1113, we'll have occasion to look into that 
uh, famous roll call of faith uh, of Hebrews chapter 11, uh, just from the angle um, that we're uh, developing here. But as it's put there in 11.13, God's people and the new covenant, no, no less than the patriarchs, are strangers and exile, strangers and exiles on the earth. And um, without uh, pursuing it further uh, outside the document, uh, that's a strong theme as well in First Peter. Notice the way in which the document begins, and then uh, especially the the culminating statement in First Peter two eleven. Uh, just a point here on, on, on the secondary uh, literature. The, um, the German New Testament uh, scholar, critical Lutheran, Ernst Kesemann, whose name's probably familiar to um, some, if not most or all of you, um, uh, Kesemann, back in the uh, 30s, uh, published a monograph entitled Das Wandender Gottesvolks, The Wandering People of God. Um, and the whole thesis of that uh, study is that the notion of the church as a company of, a company of aliens is the basic theme of the entire book. The basic theme of the entire book. Now, I don't think there's any need to, to get into that kind of argument, which theme is the most basic, uh, uh, but certainly Kazemann's work, among others, has served to highlight uh, the centrality of this theme, and that, I think, is indisputable. Uh, and that uh, helps us, uh, that, that brings us also to recognize that the model of the church as wilderness community serves for the writer to clarify uh, the pervasive hortatory character of the document. It's uh, particularly uh, the, his comparison of the church to the wilderness community, that historical anal analogy that provides him uh, with the graphic uh, representation of uh, all that lies in back of the book being word of exhortation, 1322. All right, well, we need to keep these considerations in mind now as we um, work into the passage a little bit uh, uh, further, at a couple points uh, in further detail. Any questions, comments before we, we go on? Yes. I think it does, um, and I'm not sure everything that is in back of your question, but as I've thought about that, it seems to me that while someone taking a theonomic position, and again, you have to be careful there, there, there are so many shades and, and, and variations, but uh, as I think it's fair to try to, uh, to lay hold of a certain type of thinking or pattern of thinking, uh, at the very least, it, 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 it depreciates that. Um, particularly at the point, and, and I will make this point a little bit later on down, so I won't get into it uh, right here, uh, at the point where, uh, from the point of view of uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews, so far as I can see, this wilderness identity, this alien identity, continues until Christ appears a second time for salvation to those who eagerly await him. So it doesn't seem to accommodate too much of a golden era expectation short of that. Anybody want to argue that point? Yes, go ahead. Yes. 
Okay, um, hang on to that question, if you will. I think what I want to go on to say will help, um, will give an answer to your question. Because there are differences. Um, you know, any analogy has its, uh, an analogy is, is uh, univocal only to a certain point, then there are differences that come into the picture. And we have yet to, to spell that out. What I'd like to do now, um, as uh, we work into the passage a little bit further, is to do that by concentrating our attention on what uh, you can certainly, I think, without too much uh, debate or dispute, identify as the as what for the writer are two key words, uh, two key uh, words or expressions in the psalm citation that he picks up on and then they become focal in his own comments. And they are the expressions, we'll look at them in order, Sameron, today, and then the noun katapausis, which occurs in its fullest expression, um, We'll take it right as in, in its syntactical um, my rest, and the my refers to God. My God's rest. These expressions appear several times. I won't give you all of the. I won't cite them all here. Uh, all you have to do is look over the passage, especially if you have a. Greek text that highlights the Old Testament allusions before you, uh, you can see how um, those materials, um, the material that is frequently quoted or, or cited as, as the writer develops his own exposition, contains these expressions. Um, and I think it's interesting to note Further, that if you have the Greek text in front of you, you see that these two terms bracket the passage. Samaron is the first word. Tenkatapaus and mu is the last uh, expression. And um, it, it's, uh, that is certainly not um, just uh, a coincidence and not even something just incidental. Because particularly when you look at the Old Testament uh, context, the quote begins right in the middle of the construction. So the writer has deliberately, I think we can say, uh, picked up at that point, uh, serving to highlight at least the introductory Samaron, and on the other end, um, that the Katapausen move closes. And it's also interesting to note, and I suppose, I guess this we would have to say is a certain degree coincidence, both in English, well, uh, in English, uh, virtually every English translation, the, the, the two expressions also bracket. Now, um, the question we want to raise for ourselves and, and then answer uh, is this. What is the reference of these two terms? What more exactly do they have reference to? And um, let me uh, indicate in advance what I want to try to bring out here. These two expressions are not to be equated that is they are not to be equated in the sense that they do not they are not looking at the same state of affairs. And I think we need to appreciate that despite a number of attempts uh, to argue just the opposite. That they basically are looking at the same state of affairs or uh, what happens maybe more often than not uh, Commentators not really uh, facing this question squarely. So let's first look at 
Samaron. How the writer uses that. That today, an adverb, that is plainly applied to the present situation of the readers. The present situation of the readers. Further, uh, as we look through the passage and see how the writer uses it, uh, it refers to the time in which the good news, what he calls also the word of hearing, is being proclaimed. That's in 4.2. 4.2. Again, today is that time in which, for one, the promise of entering his rest remains. A promise of entering God's rest remains. When we look at 3.15 and 4.7, 3.15 and 4.7, we see that today is a time of summons. A time, to, a time of calling to faith and obedience. Again, looking um, uh, particularly at, at the wider framework or perspective of the document, today is a time in which consummation and final judgment are still future. The consummation and final judgment are still future. Particularly 9.28 brings that out. As well, at least, a dimension of 12.25 through 29. We'll talk about that passage in uh, a bit more in just a moment. And again, as we've already uh, drawn attention, but now must attach it, if you will, to the today, today is a time in which, 3.12, hardness of heart, unbelief, apostasy, are a present and very real threat. So what we're saying, in short is that today is the time of wilderness wandering. The time of wilderness wandering. Today is wilderness time. Wilderness time, or uh, if we can use um, uh, that... um, Circumlocution of the Apostle Paul that, that captures so much, 2 Corinthians 5 7. Today is the time when God's people walk by faith and not by sight. Walk by faith and not by sight. And what, I may ask ourselves rhetorically, what is Hebrews 11? Coming back. 11, 1 and following. What is that other than a long elaboration of what it means to walk by faith and not by sight? Now, keeping that in mind, let's uh, talk about the catapausis, the rest. Here, what we must appreciate and what we must not tone down on is its character as rest. Its rest character. And in this character as rest, the catapausis stands in contrast to the believer's present situation. 
Within this passage, and, and let me, uh, I'm going to make this point uh, uh, maybe uh, several times as we go along, uh, but uh, remember always um, we are concerned not with what the writer could have said, might have said, but how he is utilizing the notion of rest within this frame, within this context. And within the context, we're saying uh, it stands in contrast, pointed contrast, to Samaron, to the believer's present situation. Within this context, the rest, you see, is simply the antithesis of exposure to hardship and temptation. It's the antithesis to the toil and the trial which the present situation involves. If we look, for instance, at the capstone statement in 4.11, uh, the, the closing uh, uh, exhortation, 4.11, believers, believers are not at rest but they are diligently, energetically, actively seeking to enter it. They are not at rest, but seeking to enter it. And that would tie in with, with what the writer uh, says, um, uh, emphasizes at a couple of other points. At uh, 6.10 and 10.24. Let's just take a second to, uh, to look at them. To, uh, um, because I want to keep them in mind uh, um, a little further on down the track of our discussion. Uh, the point at 6.10 is that God is not unjust to forget your work and the love which you showed in his name, ministering, having ministered, and continuing to minister. And then the statement in 1024, the statement in 1024 uh, talks about giving consideration um, uh, toward um, encouraging one another to love and good works the paroxysm of love and good works that is to characterize the, uh, the church. Uh, correlatively, uh, on a more positive then, vein, uh, we've seen uh, what the, the rest is the antithesis to the present, but within this passage again, it is a particular focus of hope the focus of faith. It is, as 4.1 says, a matter of epangelia, promise. It's a matter of promise. It stands before the church, remembering our analogy, it stands before the church as Canaan looms before Israel in the desert. And by the way, uh, uh, emphasizing that Canaan, uh, making explicit that Canaan uh, pole, if you will, look at 4.8. If Jesus had given them rest, had rested them literally, and... Uh, as uh, everyone recognizes here, um, that's referring uh, to Joshua. If Joshua had given them rest, then he would not be speaking uh, about another day after these things. So picking up, in other words, uh, if Joshua had given them rest, then David wouldn't have written Psalm 95, is, is, is what's being said there. But um, so the so the rest you see here is is not uh, simply figurative or metaphorical, 
but it has an unmistakably local character to it. Again and again, it is what believers enter into. Well, I shouldn't exaggerate, but several times at least. It's what believers enter into, entering into the rest. Um, yes? Yeah, I think... From the point of view of the uh, of Hebrews, the you know put it in systematic theological categories, the interim state is not in his purview. He is thinking of of the collective final rest for the for the people of God corporately. And maybe that's it's good you raise that question because maybe I should have uh, uh, brought that up because uh, brought that up because this will come in I think as well when we talk about the apostasy. Um, passages, uh, the writer is is very definitely looking at Christians not as isolated individual, as a collection of individual believers, but in terms of their corporate covenantal people of God identity. Yes, oh yes. Yes, I think you would you would say. In fact, that anticipates a point I want to make uh, later on down when we talk more about the Sabbath theme. That um, I think it would certainly be fair to say that um, that that would be a complementary viewpoint toward what the writer is saying. But he, uh, well, I should probably be careful here. Um, I, what I was going to say, he he doesn't dwell on that. But perhaps in chapter eleven there is. Uh, more of a, there's an indication at, at, at some points that, that death delivers the individual from the wilderness toil, but that's not prominent. Um, by the way, just to, to bring out um, the, the, the local uh, character of, of the rest and how the rest and the land are, have, have to be related to each other, you can, we can see that on the one side of the analogy in the, in the, uh, on the Israel side, the, uh, the Old Testament side. In Deuteronomy 12, 9, and 10, um, we have um, Moses talking um, to Israel. And he says, you have not yet reached the resting place, as I think uh, we would best translate that. Or you could, you could translate rest, but it's certainly rest in the sense of the resting place. And the Septuagint there is Aistain Taupasin. You have not yet entered into the rest. And the inheritance, Septuagint Kleronomia, the Lord your God is giving you. But, verse 10, you shall cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest. Katapause, now a verb form. So you can see here from the, from the Old Testament point of view, the rest is the resting place in the land. Land and rest define each other and they are further than defined uh, as inheritance. Or just one other example. Um, there would be a, several others we could... Well, without reading, uh, look also at 25.19 in Deuteronomy. But then, uh, rather emphatic again, is when you come to the opening of Joshua and he is there reminding uh, Israel of uh, God's word to Moses, uh, particularly um, as he is addressing uh, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and, and half of Manasseh, Transjordan. He says, The Lord your God has given you rest, kat epausen, aorist of the verb. The Lord, our, the Lord God has given you rest 
and has granted you this land, the particular area Transjordan. But then in verse 15, uh, after he has told them that even though they have this as their, their rest land, their resting place there to go fight with the other tribes, um, he tells them there to do that until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you until they have been taken until they have taken possession of the land given to them. So there again, uh, land and rest uh, uh, are mutually explanatory. Uh, and then coming into uh, Hebrews itself, uh, turn to chapter 11, and you'll see how uh, that same uh, connection between land and rest is brought out. <clears throat> the uh, point is made, let's see, um, do this most uh, efficiently. Um, 11.10, the, uh, in, in talking about the um, and having mentioned in, in verse 9 that Abraham uh, dwelt by faith in the land of promise as an alien, dwelling uh, with uh, Isaac and Jacob uh, in tents, uh, for he was looking for the city that has foundations. Now it's a polis, you see. What he was looking for is a city having foundations whose architect and builder is God. Then you get um, go a little bit further on in the passage. Um, we'll look at verse 14. The, um, where where um, uh, after they have just, you see, confessed, verse 13, their alien identity, we're aliens in the land, then the writer says, for those, for those who say such things, show, clearly manifest, that they are seeking a patrida, a homeland. Now, uh, it's somewhat more comprehensive. It's the polis is a patris, a homeland. And then verse 16 um, makes clear just what kind of homeland. But now, they were, de they were desiring... They had their desire on a cratonus, a better homeland, to Eston, that is a heavenly patris or homeland. And uh, that was verse uh, bringing together 14 and 16. And then look at 13, 14, which is... Um, Without even ha without having to go into the context there, um, see what is now said uh, of the new covenant believers. We do not have here a minusan polen. We do not have an abiding city here, but we are seeking a melusan polen, a city which is to come. So uh, all of these ideas uh, are, are correlative and, and, and reinforce one another so that the rest in its local character, its, its land character, if you will, as a, as a resting place, that can also be, been, then be described uh, as a heavenly country or a, an abiding city which is to come. So the polis, the patris, the katapausen all um, condition one another and then uh, can be surely connected as well when salvation is seen as future. Uh, as it is very clearly in 928. 
future salvation. And we could maybe argue about a 114, but if it's taken in a, in a future sense, as probably most likely there, um, would have the same connection. And then also in 114, taken in that sense, the kleronomia. So, um, the rest is a matter for the New Covenant believer um, as that, uh, that future salvation, inheritance, future city, uh, and homeland that is being sought. Or, to put it in more, um, in other language, uh, the rest is the eschatological order the eschatological order in its still future sense. The eschatological order as it is still to be realized. Yes. So, um, Throughout the entire passage, uh, to draw, round off our, our, our meat discussion here, my rest is on the horizon. God's rest is on the horizon, as it were. It refers to what is still future, as the writer puts it, as long as it is called today, to use the language of 3.13. As long as it can still be called today, the rest within the frame of this passage is still future. And that's a conclusion, that is, this, this uniform future reference, that not only rests on explicit statements, but uh, flows as well out of the basic thrust of the argument in the section, that is, the writer's introduction of the wilderness motif. So, I guess we could try to wrap it up or encapsulate it this way. Uh, today is work time or desert time to be distinguished from rest time, which is still in the future. <clears throat> 